Good morning and welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So glad that you're here to worship God together. Uh, I'd like to start with just a couple announcements and you'll find all of our announcements on the back of the bulletin. I would like to highlight a few that are going on this week and it turns out that's, that's quite a bit. Um, we have, our ladies have a fellowship that's Wednesday night. You can uh, <clears throat> contact Midge Davis uh, ahead of time. That helps make sure we have everything ready. Then our joy group has two events this week. One is Friday, the other is Saturday. Uh, you can see the details about that. It's uh, a lunch on Friday and then a traveling to Shiloh National Military Park uh, on, on Saturday. Uh, once again, Midge Davis is the contact person. She has all the information on those things. Uh, next Sunday is the fifth Sunday in May, and so as we like to do on fifth Sundays, uh, right after morning worship, I uh, would ask you to plan to stay and go across the street and eat together. The church will provide meat and uh, drinks and those sorts of things. If you would bring a side dish a, or a dessert and um, plan to stay and eat. There will always be plenty of food, so um, we'll look forward to that. The next Sunday, uh, instead of uh, evening worship, we'll, we'll have just that fellowship time uh, after our morning worship. And then the last couple of announcements you'll see on the bulletin there are related to our summer children's programs. Uh, one is our uh, kids club, children's club uh, event. That's going to be uh, on Wednesday mornings through June and July. And you'll also find information about Vacation Bible School. We are looking for people who would like to help uh, as well as want to let you know uh, so that your children can attend these things. Today, uh, the Lord's Day, a day that God has commanded and invited. It's important that you know it both ways. It's a command. God tells you to take one day and set it apart, reserved for Him and for His ways. But it's also an invitation. This is actually something that's meant for our good, our well-being, for us to enjoy because it's God's gift to you to come and put your hands, put yourself intentionally in his hands, to know his favor, to rehearse it in your mind and heart, to receive his grace. And as you think about what God has given you and how he has provided for you in his wonderful grace, let it open your heart to worship and honor him. Take just a few moments as the music is playing to, to gather your mind and your heart to worship the one true and living God who has loved you and called you to this place today.
One of the ways we know that the kingdom of God is spreading on earth is through rest, is through rest, through the rest that God gives us. Part of the Christian testimony is rest, to rest on the Sabbath, to experience physical and spiritual rest in Christ throughout the week. And when you rest on a Sunday, for instance, you're telling the world that what you have done is enough in Christ, that you are putting your life into his hands, and that you can rest from your labors and trust him for all your needs. Our call to worship is from Matthew 11 that touches on this theme. Would you please stand for our call to worship, to rest in Christ? Matthew 11, starting at verse 28, this is God's invitation to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is reason to worship. Would you honor God's invitation to worship him and rest in him and sing with me with uh, hymn number 304, Hymn 304, I heard the voice of Jesus say, let's worship. Lord, we come to rest in you this morning. Many of us are weary 
in our bodies, in our souls, in our hearts, from this world, from the things that we must do, from suffering, from health issues, from spiritual issues. Lord, we all come humbly pleading with you to give us rest. Help us to rest in you this morning by your Spirit as we worship you. Spirit, would you be with us and would you cause this spiritual rest to pervade all that we do? Would you cause us to leave this service resting in you and confident in your care for us, that you love us, that you're merciful with us and you're walking with us? Holy Spirit, we love you. We ask that you would bless our worship this morning, that you would give us strength, and that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive all that you have to speak to us. And would you lead us in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would take your bulletin, you'll find our confession of faith, which we'll read out together. And you'll, uh, I want you to be aware that next week we'll be celebrating the Lord's table. And as we go through these questions, um, it is great to review and to understand what God is doing through the table when we celebrate it. And these questions will help you. Um, so keep these in mind as we prepare for next week. I'll read the question and ask you to respond in faith with the bold print. Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by his supper but as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge, first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had personally suffered and paid for our sins. Amen. You may be seated. As we uh, take a moment to pray together as part of our worship, it's important for us to think about why we would take these words that are three or four hundred years old and confess them together. And 
One is it's, it's an act of discipleship. The, the, the robust theology, what we believe the Bible to teach, is contained in these words, and it's, it's, it does some heavy lifting. It's meant to help you shape your mind as, as to what God is doing when we share the Lord's Supper together. The second thing that we're doing is we confess it together because this is what is our unity. You know, we, we say the same words. You hear the, the, the congregation saying with one voice, we believe. And so this picture of unity is actually expressing and training us in what is the, the truth that holds us together. We come from a lot of different backgrounds and tastes. Uh, we like different music, different aspects of culture, and yet we come united under the truth that God has revealed for us. And then the third thing we do when we confess our sins is we articulate what we believe. We say it not just for each other, but for ourselves. And as we come to this time in prayer, you are acting on what you believe. You've already sung, we come to the Lord. Now, what does coming to the Lord mean? I mean, we don't really do it so much physically. In the Lord's Supper, we demonstrate and we practice what we call a, a participation in the Lord. But again, these metaphors sometimes can be a little lost in us. And so we, we just kind of don't process the symbol. Prayer is the least symbolic thing we do in worship. We're speaking to God, and He is listening. And the Lord's Supper is to be a picture. We come and fellowship with Him like we eat with other people around a table. And when we uh, confess these words together, it's a symbol of our unity, and it helps us think about what we're doing. But when we pray, that is coming before the Lord, is to say, God, I trust, I really believe you're hearing us, and that your promises are such that when we pray, you answer with your favor and blessing, with your sustaining grace, your enduring help. That the, the songs, the preaching, the Lord's Supper, these things help me shape what I believe. Practice, prayer is the practice of believing. So I would ask you for a moment, think what you have confessed about fellowshipping with God, about His desire to say, I want to nourish your soul. And in your prayer, confess to him where you need nourishing today, where you feel your weakness and want his strength, feel a hunger for righteousness, and ask him to satisfy you. Take a moment in silent prayer to bring your own heart before God as personally and intimately as you can because you believe that he really hears you. That is coming to the Lord. And after just a few moments of silent and individual prayer, I'll lead us in corporate prayer. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, in your kindness and grace, you have called us to assemble together in order to worship you. And you have made a promise that you would dwell in the praises of your people. In the book of Revelation, we see a a picture of that. Christ walking among lampstands, and he identifies lampstands as churches, that he walks among his churches. We believe that you are here with us today. And to come to you, as you commanded all who are weary, come to me and rest, is is to approach you in faith, to trust your promises. And in prayer, we are practicing our faith most really, most immediately, coming to you as one comes to a friend or to his father, to seek your favor, to trust that you indeed will dwell with sinners, that you will forgive our sins and receive us in Christ, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins that we have confessed and to cleanse us of every unrighteousness, even that which we don't know. Father, we pray that as you have cleansed us of our sins in Christ Jesus from beginning to end, we would find being reconciled to you, being renewed in fellowship with you to be a great treasure. That it would invade our thoughts when we wake up in the morning and as we go to sleep at night, that we would walk with you in the day. That it would shape the words that we say and the things that we do, that we would recognize how near you are to us and how beautiful are your commands, for they are gentle and lowly of heart the great and awesome and holy God has given to us his revelation that we might know your grace and your beautiful ways. Father, we sometimes resist your word and resist your commands. We find in our heart this sense of of wanting to be our own Lord and our own authority and a chafing against submission. But we know in these moments that we are the creature and you are the almighty, transcendent God, the maker of the heavens and the earth and of everything that is in them. And logic and wisdom would teach us to bow our knee to you and to receive from your word truth and wisdom promise and favor, grace and hope, repentance and life. We pray, Father, that you would minister to us your kindness and grace, that you would draw near to us and teach us how to draw near to you in a deep and abiding trust and joy in the gospel. To be able to come to you with our sadness and fear and anxiety and doubts, to confess our self-righteousness and our pride and our self-confidence and to be released from everything that holds us captive and find freedom in following Jesus, in denying ourselves and taking up a cross and following Christ and finding that life in him is all that we have ever wanted and your righteousness is indeed satisfying like food for our souls. Father, as we seek you to bless 
us in this moment. We ask for your blessing on our friends, on uh, Carol and Robert as they travel, and that you would guard his health, give him stamina uh, to bear the, the treatments he's taking, and as they travel to have uh, a sense of your favor on them. Father, we pray for Kara uh, and Vance and for Cece as she is ill and that the parents would, Kara uh, and Vance's parents would be able to have a deep and abiding faith that you are watching over them in the hospital. That you would restore Cece's health quickly. That she would find, even in her infancy, your power is soothing her mind. We, we don't understand but you know how to communicate your grace even to the least of us. It is your wisdom to ordain praise and strength in those who are most weak. So when we are weak and helpless, as Kara and Vance surely feel, we put ourselves in your hands and trust you. Father, as we are gathered here in this moment, we can't make you appear we could never deserve the right to be in your presence. And yet, it is by the power of your Spirit that we are drawn into fellowship with you in this very moment. So we pray, hold our hearts and our attention and our minds. Let us offer ourselves to you and you accomplish your will in us. May Jesus Christ be praised, for we pray in his name. Amen. As you have spoken to God and entrusted yourself to his blessing, would you, in response to his blessings, give tithes and offerings?
Please pray with me. Lord, as we give our tithes and offerings, we pray you would use them for uh, your glory. Lord, that you would help and support families that are in need in our church and in our town. That you would use our tithes and offerings to bless our missionaries that are across the world. Uh, To the organizations that we support, Lord, would you do great things through what we're able to give. And God, as we give, would you... Uh, make our hearts uh, grow in a way in which we loosen our grip on our love of money uh, as we give, that we would trust in you more uh, to provide for our needs, uh, even as we give away uh, those tithes and offerings that we um, need for so much. Lord, you use them uh, for our glory, uh, for your glory, our good, and we pray that as we do this spiritual practice each week, um, that you would grow us in that way. So, we're, Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue worshiping with hymn number 114, Lord our God, thy glorious name. Hymn 114, let's continue worshiping together. Please be seated. You turn your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. A few years ago, I was with some other people interested in ministry, and we were talking about... uh, what things are good to do on the Lord's Day on a Sunday. 
in keeping with God's commands and uh, kind of engaging in some discussion and thinking about it. I, I think that's a challenging uh, question and topic. And uh, one of the things that we discovered was a psalm that the inscription that begins it with, it says a psalm for the Sabbath. And in it, it lists some things that are, that are good to do, you know, playing music on stringed instruments and other ways that we can praise God and use the day well. And anyway, we read that psalm and discussed things about it. It was interesting to me that there was a particular psalm that was said. This is a psalm for the Sabbath. A psalm for every occasion, it seems. A psalm when you need wisdom. It's, it's in there. And a psalm for when you need to express sadness, as we read last week. Or a psalm for fear or anger or joy and thanksgiving. Psalm 8 is a, a psalm for vacation. So, you know that moment when you show up, the first moment you get to the beach and you look out on the, the gulf or the ocean, and you're just kind of for a moment, I mean, you, sometimes it goes away, I guess, but your moment you're stunned by just the sheer size and amount of water that's there. The waves that are constantly crashing and the amount of energy that's contained. Or, or if you're like me, you think about the fact that it's a zoo without bars. And there are a million animals and things in the ocean, which is why I prefer the sand and the wind and not the water as an experience. But, or if you've ever done this, you've, you've gone out toward the west, you're going out to the Rocky Mountains. If you're driving from somewhere in the first or maybe the end of Missouri heading through Kansas, it is flat for days. You're driving out and you're thinking, I know I'm getting close, and then off in the distance, suddenly, just shooting straight up out of the ground, these magnificent mountains, and it's breathtaking. Or perhaps, you know, the, the traditional things like the Grand Canyon. You get there and you look at it, and for at least a moment, you feel very small. Or maybe your take is, I'd rather go look at museums. And then we, we find our place in this grand scape of celebrated human history, and again, we feel small. If you do vacation right, there should be at least a moment where you're looking at something that makes you feel small and provokes you to wonder. Psalm 8 is for that moment. To teach you how to think when you're awestruck, when you have wonder, and how to bring your wonder before God. So, anticipating that, would you pray with me that God would help us wonder well? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to this psalm, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and speak to the depths of our souls. You would provoke us to wonder. He would awaken us to praise and thanksgiving that we could bring our awe before the awesome God, for you are indeed awesome. You are beyond our ability to comprehend. Even just your love exceeds our capacities. So we pray that you would give us your spirit and the supernatural strength to, to receive your love, which is deeper and wider and more grand than we can imagine. And as we read in these words about your goodness and your awe, 
We pray that it would provoke in us true, honest, biblically trained, well-worship that pleases you. Father, we commit ourselves to your care and hands and to your ministry as we read your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 8. We'll begin in verse 1. This is God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. It's completely true and utterly trustworthy. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the British journalist, uh, become Christian, and he wrote a book, Mere Orthodoxy, and in it he had some chapters talking about what were things that persuaded him that Christianity was true. And in the eighth chapter, if you ever want to go check it out, it's a chapter he calls Paradoxes. He talks about this thing he noticed, which was that people would criticize Christianity. People he read and trusted and, and liked would criticize Christianity, but seemed to do it for opposite reasons. Some would criticize Christianity for having a God who was too angry and too demanding. Others would criticize Christianity for having a God who was too lenient and too easy to get by. He says this, they did prove to me in chapter 1, to my complete satisfaction, that Christianity was too pessimistic. And then in chapter 2, they began to prove to me that it was a great deal too optimistic. So people would look at it and say, that's unrealistic in its pessimism about the world and about people. And then they look at it and say, and it's too optimistic too. This is a good one. This is a little bit longer of a paragraph, so hold with me. The gospel paradox about the other cheek, turning the other cheek, the fact that priests never fought, a hundred other things made plausible the accusation that Christianity was an attempt to make man too like a sheep. I turned the next page in my agnostic manual, and my brain turned upside down. Now I found I was to hate Christianity not for fighting too little, but for fighting too much. Christianity, it seemed, was the mother of of wars. Christianity had deluged the world with blood. I'd got thoroughly angry with the Christian because he was never angry. And now I was told to be angry with him because his anger had been the most huge, horrible thing in human history. Criticized from every direction. He said maybe the problem was it was actually the right size. It was the right way. And we criticized it because it challenged us. Here, he says, what Christianity did was not shrink these opposites. It wasn't to say, 
We need to find some satisfactory compromise ground between being strict and demanding and being lenient. This is what the world would say. This is what his agnostic or critics of Christianity would say as they would look at, at, the, at Christianity and say, or, or look at the world and say, this is what it should be. We can be and must be really demanding about big and nasty and destructive sins, but about little ones, you know, stealing paper clips or whatever, those we can just ignore. That way we can be a little lenient and a little strict and find a nice compromise. Christianity says you must be demanding about every sin, about every transgression of God's law. At every point, big or little, it must be rightly hated. On the other hand, you must be able to love all kinds of sinners from every stripe, no matter their transgressions. Christianity has a way to to hate the little sins as well as the big ones, but also to love the little sinners as well as the big ones. And he says what was beautiful about Christianity to him was that it wasn't compromising these opposites. It was by combining furious opposites, keeping them both and keeping them furious, intensifying them. He found that Christianity had a reality to it that the rest of the world couldn't see. And David here in this psalm is actually starting to meditate on those things, things that are wildly opposite and yet brought together and linked by his faith. He says, I see God pouring strength into weakness. I see the transcendent God who has made amazing, incomprehensible space drawing near to us. And I have seen a God who brings authority out of rebellion. I want you to see those from this psalm. And of course, it tells us that this is a psalm of David and uh, he's looking at the stars. Now, that could have happened in almost any place in David's life, but let's just propose for a second that perhaps David is a very young man or maybe even preteen. He's out with the sheep, as was his life before he became anointed king. He was a shepherd for his family. And so, uh, nighttime, sitting with the sheep, looking up, Gazing on the stars would be the perfect occasion for him to feel small and to write these words. It's entirely possible that what you're reading in Psalm 8 are the words of a 12-year-old. It's pretty good poetry. He starts by telling you what he wants you to know, and he ends with it. O Lord, O our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But what makes it majestic? It starts with strength and weakness. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength. Your strength comes from the testimony of the littlest ones, of the weakest ones, of the ones who could easily overlooked and ignored. That's where he takes he takes the literally the weakest of all of humanity, those who are dependent 
on their parents for everything, babes and infants. Now, perhaps he was thinking about himself. Maybe he was very young as he wrote this. And he was thinking about, here I'm inspired to write these words of praise. And he, he's sort of speaking hyperbolically, but his point is clear. Out of those who have no strength by any standard that man can measure, you have ordained strength there. This is among my favorite themes in all the Bible, is that God says, my power in your weakness. I love it because I'm standing up here and I'm trying to preach to you about eternal things and I'm not up for this. I don't have the words that can captivate you. I can't bring you to see the magnificent of these words. I can only hold them in front of you and expect the power of God to minister them to you. I love the idea that God shows his strength in our weakness. You want a, an example of this? I'll give you one. <clears throat> if you haven't seen it, it's a children's movie. It's a cartoon movie. So it, 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 just be prepared. This, the movie is Kung Fu Panda. I have the song in my head right now. And in the, when we are introduced to the Kung Fu villain, Tai Lung, he's in prison. But not just any ordinary prison, a prison of unimaginable, just about, uh, security. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of guards at this prison, and he's the only uh, prisoner. He is kept in a large pit at the bottom of it where there's no way to get up or down from it. He's uh, got acupuncture needles that are meant to disable him. He's chained because he is such a dangerous villain. They can't let anything or anyone even near him. And due to happenstance, there floats down just a little feather that lands on his platform in reach of his tail, which can only move a tiny bit. And that's enough for Tai Lung to overpower all the guards and escape from his prison. And the picture of this, of course, is... This villain is so powerful that even a feather in his capacities can be super dangerous. I want you to see, David's here looking at that going, guys, that kind of image, that's what I want you to see, that even the mouth of a baby who has no words is powerful in God's hands. Jesus applies this passage. It's... Uh, Probably the day or maybe the second day after his triumphal entry, he's in Jerusalem, he's at the temple, and some children, little children, are at the temple and they see him and they start saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they said back at the triumphal entry. Now they're at the temple and they're saying it. And, and you know, kids, it's very possible they were in the crowd and they had heard this and they're just repeating it, Right? Maybe they don't even know fully what they're saying. And the Pharisees get to Jesus and they say, you've got to quiet these children down. And Jesus says, well, haven't you? And he quotes this passage. And he basically says, they're doing what God gave them to do. And it quieted the mouth of the enemies of God. Let me talk about a couple of things that this means for us. If infants and babies, by their words, their voice, can praise God and bring about 
the silence of arguments. If the power of God is able to extend and use the weakest of us, that means there are no insignificant people. This little verse should shape how you view people with disabilities. This verse should shape how you view people who aren't very articulate or aren't very educated or aren't very wealthy or don't have a lot of time and resources. This should help you think about your own weaknesses. This should shape how you view children in the womb. This is God saying, my power is such that there are no insignificant people because of some weakness that they bear because his power is able to use them for his praise and even to silence his enemies. And it's important for you too because you're going to find yourself in places where you feel like you don't have enough power. You're going to be walking alongside someone who is dealing with a really powerful addiction or a deep-rooted sin that wounds and hurts you. You're going to find yourself with people who have great needs, and you say, I don't think I have anything to give them, and I want you to be able to have this verse echoing in your head. Now, listen, I want you to learn and be educated. God uses our educations, and I want you to enter into people's lives with humility. This isn't the license for us just to say whatever pops in our minds, but I want you to understand that if you find yourself in a place where you feel overwhelmed in trying to minister to someone else, you're in the right place, and God's power is sufficient in your weakness. It also means that you have power to worship. Whatever time period this was for David, he was out under the stars, not in his palace. And he was alone long enough for him to gaze on those stars and say, God is great. I want you to see that what God does here is enable you to come in this place and it is his power that makes you able to worship. It empowers your song, your prayer, your giving. It empowers your ability to listen and to hear the scriptures read and to receive what is taught. You are, in all your weakness, in exactly the right place. The second thing I want you to see is this nearness in space. Verse 3, when I look at the, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? He looks up at the stars, and on a, a clear night, which there were no street lights, so it would have been dark, and there's no air pollution, so he's not obscured by smog, he's able to see just a magnificent vista of stars overhead, thousands of stars in his vision. And as he looks at them, he goes, even that, as grand as it is, it's just the work of your fingers. He begins to meditate on the immense power of God that he can comprehend just in the regular night sky. And you know more 
Philip Yancey in his book on prayer, when he's trying to get you to think about the real power of God so that you can engage it in prayer, he says if you took the whole Milky Way galaxy and you were to shrink it to the size of North America, so Canada and United States, Mexico, and you take this whole continent of North America, and that became the same, you know, that's what you shrunk the Milky Way to. Our galaxy, the sun out to Pluto, would fit in a coffee cup. Just ponder for a second the magnitude of this. That means that the earth would be something like the size of a few molecules and you would be unable to be noticed even with our most powerful microscopes. In the scheme of the galaxy and all that God has created, the universe and all that God has made, you and I are quite small. And there are plenty of folks who, as skeptics, have looked at this and say, this kind of proves that there's not really a God. We're not that special. We're not so special that God would create all this and pay attention to us off in the corner somewhere. Now, the logic goes something like this. Religion says we're special, so God made this place for us. Christianity says... We're special because God pays attention to us. Not because we were inherently special, so God had to notice. God chose to pay attention to us. He made us and continues to pay attention to us. And and that's what David says. I don't get it. Why would you even look, God? But you do. What is man that you're mindful of him? We couldn't get your attention. Not with our best yelling and screaming, not with our most eloquent prayers. We could draw signs in the sand and say, pay attention, God, and none of it would even catch your notice, except the truth is, you care for him. I want you to recognize the dignity that your humanity is clothed in, in all all that God has made. He has set his special, remarkable affection on you as humans. The very fact that you were born as a descendant of Adam and Eve means you are clothed with nearly indescribable dignity and honor. And that dignity and honor is that God says, I love them. I pay attention to them. I take care of them. They are mine. They're in my image. In in the grand scheme of all that God has made, he says it's like finger work. A few days ago, we were at my house cleaning out a, a storage closet. And I'm hauling things out, boxes, and, you know, trying to make sure I can, occasionally trying to pick up two boxes, hoping I can carry them. It's heavy, it's sweaty, it's dirty, and when I'm done, I'm like, that's enough for today. When God made all the universe and all that you can imagine, it was the work of his fingers. This morning, I was watching Karen put a little cinnamon sugar on a piece of bread, That's finger work. 
That's the work of fingers. That's what it takes God to create all that exists and uphold it. You have not begun to plumb the depths of His power that is aimed at His treasured creation, humans. You are clothed with great dignity and God draws near to you, this transcendent and awesome God. And then he describes this particular task that he has given to you. Verse 5, you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. He says, I've given you responsibility for all of them. You're to be Lord over them in my place, to be my agents to take care of this world. Do you feel like you're in dominion over the animals? I told you already, I don't even want to go in the ocean. I'm terrified of what I'll find there. And I used to go in it for my kids' sake because I loved them more than I hated my fear of whatever I might find in there. But they're old now. And so, you know, my days of getting in the ocean might be done. I don't feel like I have dominion over these things. In, the, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come when he was speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Here is the writer of Hebrews saying, I want you to understand what that psalm is finally about. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What happens is that in this psalm, David is saying, God, you made us to take care of your creation. This is what you tasked us to do. But you and I know we have done it poorly. We have abdicated our responsibility. We have rebelled against our king. We have claimed the things we can manage for ourselves instead of for him. And in doing that, we injected into God's good creation this rebellion. And in the midst of that rebellion you find that what, God, what, what, what David was really talking about, what he was inspired to say, was not just that humanity was ruling over all things, but that the man, Jesus, would come and rule over all things, that in the midst of our rebellion, he would regain that dominion. And you know how he did it? He used our rebellion to do it. What God had foreordained that Jesus would come and and die what he used the hands of sinful men to do. That God sent his son in the likeness of sinful man that he might dwell among us and even 
be put in the hands of sinful men in rebellion to God, and all that they would do is accomplish his saving purposes. Jesus was the one who was in charge, even on the cross. He has dominion over everything. He rules the heavens and the earth. It is his. And while right now we go, I'm not sure I see it, you can know that the one who sits by the Father's throne, who is crowned with glory and honor, is in charge of all things and will lead you to the restoration. He will lead you to be the humanity clothed in dignity that you were meant to be. He is even able to use your rebellion in order to bring about your sanctification and salvation, such as his dominion. And if you were to think about how God enters into this life and sees how we have wrecked the dignity of man by our rebellion and yet accomplishes our restoration, then the only right thing to do is to say, Lord, how majestic is your name? What an awesome thing you have done. To stand amazed at his power, at his creation, at our place in it, and then to stand amazed at his salvation when we went wrong. Here is what G.K. Chesterton said. In one way, man was to be haughtier than he had ever been before. In another way, he was to be humbler than he had ever been before. Insofar as I am a man, I am the chief of creatures. Insofar as I am a man, I am the chief of sinners. Christianity thus held that the thought of dignity of man could only be expressed in crowns rayed like the sun and the fans of peacock plumage. Yet at the same time, it could hold the thought about the abject smallness of man that could only be expressed in fasting and fantastic submission. It takes these furious opposites of your great dignity and your great rebellion and holds them together in the person of Jesus who came to show you the dignity of his care for you and to redeem you from your rebellion. Stand in awe. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate on these words, to receive this revelation of Christ Jesus who entered into our world of rebellion and is bringing into it order and submission and let that submission start with us and we would enjoy the dignity that you have shown us and the power that's at work in our weakness and your name would be majestic in all the earth we pray in Jesus name amen having seen the greatness of God's creation and his redemption. Let's sing to his greatness. Hymn number 44, How Great Thou Art. Let's stand and sing 44.
The great and mighty God gives His blessing, His great and mighty blessing to His church. You who believe in Christ receive that blessing on the authority of God's Word. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.